0: Well, good morning and good afternoon.
1: Uh, just before I forget, or in case I do forget, next week uh, Sarah uh, McClellan will be giving a Way Seeking Mind talk. She is a Sangha member in Santa Cruz and part of Twining Vines as well. She did Jukai uh, a while ago now. But I thought it would be good for her to give away Seeking Mind talk. So next week she'll be giving the talk. So it's good to support our Sangha members when they tell the story, how they came to the Dharma. So I hope you can all all attend. Uh, Today I'd like to speak about fear. And this came about, um, someone in the Sangha sent me a chapter from a book called Fear by Thich Nhat Hanh. And the chapter is called A Time Before and he speaks about fear in a way I have not heard before, so I thought it was very beautiful. So I'll we'll read from that
0: today and make comments along the way. So re- reading from Thich Nhat Hanh here.
1: Many of us don't remember this, but a long time ago we lived inside our mother's wombs. We were tiny living human beings. There were two hearts inside our mother's body, her own heart and our heart. During this time, your mother did everything for you. She breathed for you, ate for you, drank for you. You were linked to her through your umbilical cord. Oxygen and food came to you through the umbilical cord and you were safe and content inside your mother. You were never too hot or too cold. You were very comfortable. You rested on a soft cushion made of water. In China and Vietnam, we call the womb the palace of the child. You spent about nine months in the palace. The nine months you spent in the womb were some of the most pleasant times of your life. Then the day of your birth arrived. Everything felt different around you and you were thrust into a new environment. You felt cold and hungry for the first time. Sounds were too loud, lights were too bright. For the first time we felt afraid. This is the original fear. Inside the palace of the child, you didn't need to use your own lungs. But at the moment of your birth, someone cut the umbilical cord and you were no longer physically joined with your mother. Your mother could no longer breathe for you. You had to learn how to breathe on your own for the first time. If you couldn't breathe on your own, you would die. Birth was an extremely precarious time. You were pushed out of the palace and you encountered suffering. You tried to inhale, but it was difficult. There was some liquid in your lungs and to breathe in, you had to first push out that liquid. We were born and with that birth, our fear was born along with the desire to survive. This is the original desire.
0: So we don't talk
1: this way in Zen very often, speaking so intimately about the body and about babies and umbilical cords.
0: But I think it is a beautiful thing to reflect
1: on, a delicate thing to reflect on, uh, that shift from being in the security of the womb to being outside. And having had three children myself, I was fortunately fortunate enough to have been able to homebirth them all and have kind of say over how things hap- how things happened. One of the things i one of the things I realized in my reading during all of those times was how often in modern society we cut the umbilical cord very, very quickly. the baby is born and uh, the umbilical cord still providing oxygenated blood to the baby for quite a long time. I can't remember how many minutes it is, but it's sort of something like 10 or 15 minutes. It's quite a long time. And in many cultures before modern medicine, that cord was not cut until quite a bit later. The baby would be born and not until it had latched onto the mother's breast until it had reconnected with the mother in a new way. And oxygen was still flowing through the cord. And what actually happens is when the baby latches to the breast, a message is sent to the placenta to say, you're no longer needed. And then the placenta detaches from the inside of the womb and the oxygenated blood stops flowing into the baby. So, there's this natural order of things that the baby is supposed to reconnect and be firmly attached again to the mother before the umbilical cord is severed. But that's not how it's done often in modern medical times for all the various reasons that that is so.
0: And I think, in a way, it is uh,
1: emblemic of a culture that values independence over interdependence that as soon as the baby comes out boom cut that cord separate it from the mother i think there is a trend now back towards waiting a little longer which is good in, in western countries So reading again, from Thich Nhat Hanh. As infants, each of us knew that to survive, we had to get someone to take care of us. Even after our umbilical cord was cut, we still had to rely entirely on adults to survive. When you depend on someone or something else to survive, it means there is a link, a kind of an invisible umbilical cord that is still there between you and them. When we grow up, our original fear and original desire are still there. Although we know we are no longer babies, we still feel that we cannot—we still fear that we cannot survive, that no one will take care of us. Every desire we will have in our lives has its root in this original, fundamental desire to desire to survive. Everyone is afraid sometimes. We fear loneliness, being abandoned, growing old, dying, and being sick, among many other things. Sometimes we may may feel fear without knowing exactly why. If we practice looking deeply, we see that this fear is the result of that original fear from the time we were newborns helpless and unable to do anything for ourselves. Even though we have grown into adults, that original fear and original desire are both still alive. Our desire to have a partner is, in part, a continuation of our desire for someone to take care of us.
0: And I think part of our our task as
1: as we mature, is to recognize how we do need to be taken care of and to look after that and 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 make sure that our needs are taken care of but also to slightly shift the compass slightly shift toward putting our attention towards caring for others you know in a way you could say shifting from the baby to the mother slowly shifting into the role of being the one that cares for, rather than the one that is cared, cared for. It's always going to be both, but I do think it's a sign of uh, a kind of a maturity when we can shift our attention more toward providing that umbilical link for others and being a little less concerned about that umbilical link for ourselves.
0: Continuing reading again.
1: For most of us, our original fear continues in some form. Sometimes we might feel scared of being alone. We may feel that, alone, I can't make it. I have to have somebody. This is a continuation of our original fear. If we look deeply, however, we will find that we have the capacity to calm our fear and find our own happiness. And I was thinking a little about loneliness. And sometimes, just to share, sometimes I miss my son who lives in America. I miss him a lot because he and I are very, very close, kind of like a lot of, Stories you hear of single mothers and sons having a very close bond where the son really respects and appreciates that the mother raised them and the mother really appreciates and respects the way their child conducts their life. So sometimes I miss him. We talk so naturally and easily together and now we can only do that uh, virtually. We don't get to do it in person. But rather than letting that turn into a fear that that could start to kind of constrict or be constricting, I try just to be gentle with it and go, aren't I lucky to have someone to miss so much? What a beautiful thing. And to be kind to the feeling of melancholy itself, to be friendly with that little melancholy feeling of missing him. Oh, hello melancholy friend, you've come to visit me. So we can sort of transform something as it tips towards fear. We can can gently kind of embrace it so that it doesn't uh, escalate into something.
0: It then becomes difficult to manage. And this next section is why I particularly love
1: this chapter. We have to look deeply to identify the original primal fear and desire that are behind so many of our behaviours. Every one of the fears and desires that you have today is a continuation of your original fear and desire. One day I was walking and I felt something like an umbilical cord linking me to the sun in the sky. I saw very clearly that if the sun was not there, I would die right away. Then I saw an umbilical cord linking me to the river. I knew that if the river wasn't there, I would also die because there would be no water for me to drink. And I saw an umbilical cord linking me to the forest. The trees in the forest were creating oxygen for me to breathe. Without the forest I would die. And I saw an umbilical cord linking me to the farmer who grows the vegetables, the wheat, the rice that I cook to eat. When you practice meditation you begin to see things that other people's do not other people do not see. Although you don't see all these umbilical cords, they are there, linking you to your mother, your father, the farmer, the sun, the river, the forest, and so on. Meditation can include visualisation. If you want to draw a picture of yourself with these many umbilical cords, you would soon discover that there are not only five or ten, but maybe hundreds or thousands of them, and you are linked to them all. So again, I think this is a rather unusual image in Zen to think of umbilical cords linking us to things. But it's also very poetic and beautiful to think of it that way. Because it is actually our original experience
0: in the womb. Nobody
1: nobody doesn't get born that way. Whether it's a cesarean section or natural birth, it's still there's the umbilical cord.
0: We can look out and uh, feel that same
1: appreciation, interdependence, that opposite of loneliness and, in fact, deep, deep connectedness that we have with them That would alleviate fears that we may have because fear almost, almost by definition is a, a constriction around the individual self. Although I do think we can feel fear for others. We can feel fear on their behalf, which I'm going to speak about in a moment. But fear tends to isolate us. So this image of the umbilical cord I think can be very helpful to us. To remind us that we're not that we're not alone, even if it might feel that way. And that whatever fears we have, there's support out there for us. We can reach out get that umbilical cord and go along it to
0: whatever's at the other end and get support. And I
1: think part of that process of being friendly towards our fear is to not focus so much on the content of the thought itself, but more on the feeling of the fear and think of and to think of that feeling as it arises as as a friend that wants attention it's this friend that wants attention this fear has arisen and we just we can be friendly towards it rather than getting too involved in all the details of the actual fear and that also becomes almost like a companion right there we have this companion a melancholy companion
0: a lonely companion, a scared companion.
1: And another thought that I had about uh, raising children and modern society is that we tend to live in modern society in enclosed environments that are not very, they don't have a lot of sentient life in them. They have a lot of objects that, aren't, that are not alive. They have their own kind of aliveness, but it's not like the world outside of our homes or the world outside of buildings. And when I raised my older children, we were living on a permaculture farm off the grid and they spent their daytime mostly outdoors. You know, I'll put a blanket out under a tree and they would lie there and see the dappled sunlight coming through the leaves. And that that was like, you know, we tend to have a crib with a mobile above it that, that turns around, and that, that's what entertains a child uh, a lot of the time. But this, I think, is a much more uh, wholesome way is to have just the dappled sunlight. I remember seeing my daughter lying there and Looking at the sun moving between the branches, you know the the broken-up light, and how it just—she was captivated by it. And then a leaf would fall, and she would fiddle with it. And a chicken might come up. We had chickens and geese and donkeys and goats and all the usual sorts of farm animals. And they would come up to her, and you know, once they were older, they would run around and chase them. They interacted in the vegetable garden, picking peas and tomatoes and beans, little cucumbers, little baby cucumbers, and chewing on them. So they were were interacting. It's like the umbilical cords were more obvious with living beings. But uh, we tend, probably most of us, didn't get raised that way. So in a lot of ways, I think we need just to step out the door more often we just need to step out the door to where there's other life.
0: I wanted to share a dream I had last night
1: because there were three fears in the dream. And I thought they it was kind of interesting. Obviously I had the dream in some part because of today's talk. So in the dream, a senior teacher and I were leading a session, a retreat, and during one of the breaks, we needed to go move a car that needed to be moved for some reason. So off we went and we had our robes on. And when we got to the car, the, the area was completely flooded. And as many of you know, we've had these huge floods in Australia, so that that came through in the dream. So the car was floating in the water and this other teacher and I had to kind of get into the water and to steer the car and find a spot for it. So we did do that. But that took some time. And I suspected that I was not going to get back to the zendo until right on the dot of the time for sitting, or maybe even a few minutes late. (laughs) So the first fear in the dream was a sympathetic fear. In the dream, I was thinking, my sangha members know that I'm very punctual. So if I get there a little bit late, they'll worry. You know, they'll be slightly confused and worried. And so I had this sympathetic fear for them. And then also in the dream, a senior student had given the Dharma talk in the morning but hadn't finished, and I'd suggested, well, you could also finish and give a Dharma talk in the afternoon so that you can finish the talk. But while I was out with this senior teacher, he didn't know that we had made this arrangement, and he said to me, I'd love to give the talk this afternoon. And because of the appropriateness of, of our relationship, I said, of course, that would be wonderful. Thank you. So then the second fear was, I'm going to get back to the Zendo just on time or even late and need to whisper to the senior student that they won't be able to give their talk. And so then I had another sympathetic fear that they might feel slightly embarrassed and a little, also a little confused that... There was a last-minute schedule change, a little disappointment. And then the last fear that happened in the dream was that in the process of moving that car with my robes on, my zagu, my bowing mat, had got completely wet. And when, when the doshi, the priest, folds out the bowing mat in the middle of the zendo, it unfolds in a particular way and it gets refolded. In a particular way, and, and the, the fabric develops a memory. Like I, you can see, if you could, I don't know if you can see the zagu there in the camera, but there's folds in the zagu that are, um, the fabric remembers the fold and it makes it easier to unfold and fold it up because it's already there in the fabric. So my zagu was completely wet and I couldn't remember how to fold it because there were no fold marks. And so I just went, I'll just have to fold it somehow. So I folded it the way one would fold a towel, which I knew was not the correct way. But nevertheless, that's what I did. (laughs) So then the third fear in the dream was just a slightly more personal one, a sense of, oh, I'm going to bow in the zendo, and I won't be able to follow the proper form. I'm going to pull out this wet sagu and have to kind of undo it in a slightly awkward way. So a slight feeling and possible embarrassment that I wouldn't follow the form very well. But the reason I'm sharing this dream with you is two, two reasons. One, just that the dream gave examples of sympathetic fear to others, that we, we can fear fear on other people's behalf. And uh, many people don't realize that a lot of people who have post-traumatic stress actually have post-traumatic stress, not because of traumas that happened to them, because of traumas traumas that they witness, or traumas that they cause. Like soldiers often have PTSD because of the traumas that they cause. So there's an empathic, it's an empathic fear. So in the dream, there were some of those. And then the other reason to mention it is, even in the dream itself, I soothed myself in the dream. I said to myself in the dream, the Sangha members will be fine will only be a few minutes late. Even if they're confused, it will only be for a few minutes. So I kind of like diminish the fear for myself. And the senior Sangha member who was going to give a talk and might have felt a little disappointed, I was able to say to myself in the dream, that'll also be okay. It's not a big disappointment. We'll, We'll find a solution later. And with the third fear about the embarrassment with the wet Sagu, I was able to say, it's fine. We kind of like each other being faulty. It's kind of nice. Don't worry about it. So our Dharma practice can continue into our dream life. Just in case you've never thought of that as a a possibility. We practice during the day in our conscious, during the day consciously. But when we continue to practice, it starts to flow into our dream world. And we practice
0: in our dreams.
1: So the last thing I'd like to mention is, uh, every day we chant the Heart Sutra, and the word fear is in our Heart Sutra. It says, with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva lives by prajna Paramita, and thus the mind is without hindrance. Without hindrance, there is no fear. That's in our chanting that we do in the morning. Without hindrance, there is no fear.
0: What is the primary hindrance? A belief in a separate self.
1: A belief in a self that's not connected by umbilical cords infinitely across the universe. A self that's isolated. And it goes on to say, far beyond all inverted views, one realises nirvana. So that the primary inverted view is to feel that you are a separate being. And that's why I really like this sense that at birth there shouldn't, you know, ideally there should not be that moment of separation. The child should come out, latch to the mother, and only then have the cord cut. And that's really how life really is. It's never, there's never any moment of separation. It's always an interdependent life,
0: every single moment. So uh, I want to thank Thich Nhat Hanh for such a beautiful chapter about fear, such an unusual chapter. And uh, open open the space up for any questions or comments from anyone in the sender or on Zoom. Mavanwi. Um,
2: you said you were speaking about how as you mature you you begin to turn outwards and you, you're taking on the role of, of the caregiver. Um, and I was thinking about how it's not so much that um, you stop being the one cared for, but that you are able to internalise that care. Well, yeah. Um, that rather than needing a parent figure, you become that for yourself yeah um, and if you don't internalize that well and you take on the role of caregiver, you can end up with issues because you're sort of there there isn't something filling that gap left behind by not being cared for by other another person as much. um And I find that in my practice that comes up a lot, this remembering that um. All beings includes myself. That, you know that I have to remember that it's not it's not completely turning outwards. Um, that there's that responsibility for myself, and that responsibility. If I don't fulfil that for myself, I can't fulfil that for others. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to that.
1: Yeah, well, I think you think you've said it very well. That it's important that we care for ourselves. Because certainly we can't care for others if we don't care for ourselves well. We won't do a good job. It just won't work very well. It'll probably have benefits, but it'll also have a little, there'll probably be a little bit of harm mixed in with it.
0: Yeah. So we
1: need to be like our own parent, as you say. That's that's actually being very generous to others to be a good parent to us. It's kindness to the world for us to care for
0: Sarah. She can't seem to unmute. Alex is just seeing if he can unmute.
3: Okay. That works. <laughs> so um this week was really hard because i'm sure all of you know about all the the kids and the teachers that were killed in texas and like on wednesday morning i went to the zendo and i saw patrick and i think i was just bottling all that up and i just started crying and then we went and we sat i I was there because i was a dough on And then after the service, we all got in a circle and we were all crying together. And and then that night at the talk, Patrick talked about, um, you know, we talked about that together, about that experience and what was what had happened. And, you know, um, but I think what how I felt was just really raw and really aware of just Really intense suffering that's happening all the time all over the place, like the suffering that the planet's experiencing, that animals are experiencing, the suffering that the happened at the school. and uh, you know what I mean? it's it's like constant. It's very present, suffering in Ukraine and people starving in places and and then I f- feel like, well, we are interconnected and, but there's just so much suffering. What can we do? I just feel, um, I just feel helpless. And so I was wondering, I just talked to a friend about that actually right before this talk, who I was walking with. And I, I guess now that's why it came to my mind. So I was wondering if any, what are your strategies, anyone here on how you deal with the constant suffering and our connection to it?
1: <clears throat> I'd like to say just listening to you speak is um, just how harmful violence is, obviously for all sorts of reasons, but because it generates fear and because fear generates isolation, she, fear generates often a sense of bitterness and isolation. It is so harmful to generate
0: fear in other Terribly harmful thing, and
1: you know, what happens with these continuing school shootings has generates vast fear that ripples, you know, across the whole nation in America,
0: as people too, other around this sense of maybe feeling a little overwhelmed by the magnitude of the suffering in the world. I think a very, very valuable thing to contemplate
1: is the mere fact of the injustice, injustices that happen in the world. It's not easy to sit with the fact that there is suffering and that it is completely unfair. You can't justify it in any way.
0: It's unfair, but it is so.
1: So, contemplating the fact, the reality, of the relentlessness of suffering without forgetting vast amounts of beautiful, joyful, wonderful things as well, but nevertheless a great deal. If we can come to some kind of acceptance of the magnitude of it all, we're then actually freed up to not be overwhelmed and instead just to respond in whatever way we can respond given ourselves. And we can just do that wholeheartedly. I know, I already know enough about you, Sarah, to know the things you already do. You do a lot of good deeds in the world. And that is enough,
2: completely enough.
1: Just do the good deeds that you do, and other people do the good deeds that they do. And all these good deeds are connected to each other. These umbilical cords connecting everything. It's its even a little um, egocentric to feel that we have to somehow be a major saviour, Better not to think that way. Better to do just whatever is really appropriate in front of you to relieve the suffering of the world and trust that others are doing that as well. And collectively,
0: we are are doing what we can. It's not an easy thing to contemplate the magnitude
1: of injustice, but it is worthwhile to contemplate it without resistance. So that we don't get overwhelmed because getting overwhelmed is not useful to anyone just going back to Mabami's comment about self-care it's not good self-care to get overwhelmed and that's the way that I don't get overwhelmed it's been contemplating the fact of injustice has allowed me to accept it
0: and then do what I can
1: so there may be other other methods or other wisdom teachings but I have found that one to be very, very effective. Thank you for for your for caring, sir. And and I also think it's very good to cry. It's definitely good to to access the sadness. Because sadness is not the same as depression. Sadness is great. It's great. It's appropriate to be sad about terrible things. It's much better to be sad than
0: scared nice to hear. I can see you all on the on the porch at the back of San Cruz and imagine you there shedding tears. I remember story um you might know about um one of the, she was a lay, student, but she um there's this story about and a granddaughter
2: was crying, and one of the monks came up to her and said, "Aren't you uh aren't you supposed to be a great practitioner? Why aren't you?" Um, you know, making offerings and doing the Buddhist response. Why are you, you know, crying?
0: And this is the course to your business, and it's quite a powerful story of very well-established old Zen language And it also made me think of how many stories a women as kind of like about direct meeting and the very gentle and way of and there's that book Red uh, read But just in
1: case people didn't hear all of that, I'm only suggesting a book called Red Thread Send by Susan Murphy that speaks to the emotional side of this and the benefit, and that it's perfectly fine for practitioners, senior practitioners,
0: to shed tears. Any last comment?
1: Yes. Okay, announcements. I did announce at the beginning and I'll just do it again that Sarah who's now here on the screen will be giving the talk next week way seeking mind talk. Uh, and also we're now going to have Tuesday evenings uh, available on Zoom as well as in the Zendo. So 6:30 to 7:30. At 6:30 we will begin sitting and do a 40-minute sit rather than a 30-minute and then a 20-minute service. Good opportunity to see how a service, a full service is done in a. If you'd like to join us on Zoom or
0: of course you can go Zendo too if you're in camp. Thank you everyone for participating. We'll finish with our closing chant and three back. Beans. Beans. I vow to save them, the delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them, the gates are boundless, I vow to enter them, the world's away, the sun's